Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Interrobang Podcast, produced by Interrobang Books in Dallas, Texas. On this week's show, we have an interview with Julie Bearwald, the author of Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. You'll also hear bookseller recommendations from children's event coordinator Melanie Thompson and myself. I'll then tell you about the diverse events we'll have in the store in the coming days. You can find events, new releases, articles, and book recommendations on our website, www.interrobangbooks.com. To begin with, here's Adult Events Coordinator Tom Blute with our featured event of the week. Hello, this is Tom Blute. While we have many programs upcoming at Interrobang Books, I'm especially looking forward to hearing from historical fiction writer James Haley. While we have many programs upcoming at Interrobang Books, I'm especially looking forward to hearing from historical fiction writer James Haley. I recently had the opportunity to review his newest book, A Darker Sea, which you can find on our website at interrobangbooks.com. Haley's latest series focuses on the struggles of the newly liberated United States in the immediate aftermath of the Revolutionary War. A Darker Sea focuses on the War of 1812 as told from the viewpoint of Commander Bliven Putnam. Haley's writing is incredible, so come on out this Saturday at 3 p.m. to meet James Haley here at Interrobang Books and hear about his newest book, a darker sea. We look forward to seeing you. Julie Bearwald has made a name for herself as a freelance science writer, contributing to the New York Times, the Huffington Post, National Geographic, and a score of other magazines and textbooks. She received a Ph.D. from the University of Southern California in 1998. Since then, she's traveled the world, participating in countless expeditions in study of marine wildlife and habitats. Her new book, Spineless, just came out last week. Here's her conversation with Elizabeth Hamilton, recorded last week on Skype. So thanks for taking the time. I'm so delighted. I'm excited to like be at Interving and I'm excited to like be on the podcast. So it's great. Sweet. Well, we're really looking forward to having you. And I really enjoyed your book. This is it. This is your first book. It's my first. You know, I read some other like reference books and more academic kind of things. But yeah, this is the very first book that came from my heart. So your book is about jellyfish, and it's also, though, about you and how you came to love marine biology and especially how you came to do that while living in Austin, which is landlocked, of course. And so I know that you talk a lot about this in the book, but maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about why marine biology, what about the sea and the creatures in it really interested you. It's such a good question because I did, I grew up totally landlocked in Missouri, in St. Louis. And so I had never been in the ocean, you know, as a kid, all of our family vacations were actually like to national parks on land. So I like never, I never got to even go on a beach vacation. And then um, my junior year, I went to Israel for college to do a year abroad. And I was pretty miserable there because of the politics and because I was 19 and everybody my age 
was in the army who lived there. And I, I had this like random chance to go down and go diving in the Red Sea, take a marine ecology course. And from the minute I stuck my head in the water, it was like this world opened up and I realized, wow, this is most of our planet. And there was also this really cool connection because I had been a math major and I had gotten to the part of math that was really theoretical and it was beautiful in a sort of abstract way, but it didn't have much of a connection to me or anything I really saw around me. So when the marine ecology professor started explaining how equations could be used to understand the dynamics on the coral reef, I was like hooked forever because it, it gave my math that I had been studying a, a purpose. And from there on, I just couldn't, couldn't get away from it. And you went from there to study marine biology, but it wasn't until later that you really were interested in jellyfish. For my PhD, I studied plankton, and I, I say this a little bit in the book, and it's kind of true. Like, biologists have a funny relationship to math, so some of them absolutely hate it, and some of them absolutely love it. But there's sort of, like, no middle ground. So I hooked up with one who absolutely loved that I knew a lot of math, and he um, and I worked on satellite imagery of the ocean, so what satellites see when they look down at our oceans and... Um, and so I never even thought of a jellyfish for my whole PhD. There was no, um, yeah, I mean, I was in just sort of a whole different part of, of ocean science. And so it wasn't until later after I became a textbook writer and I started doing a little more mainstream writing that I was working on a project for National Geographic about ocean acidification. And I came across this graphic that was like winners and losers in a future acidified ocean. And jellyfish were on the winner's side, and I just, I thought, do we know? Have we done the experiments? And I dove into the scientific literature and found that not only were the experiments uncertain, but, you know, there was a lot still that needed to be studied, but there was a huge, really exciting debate about what was happening to jellyfish in today's oceans going on in the literature. And that's, so it was really this really cool scientific question that got my interest in the whole story. And when you say jellies were on the winning side of acidification, for those of us who are less scientific, what do you mean by that? Right. So we're burning fossil fuels, and that's putting carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, and which we know has an impact on the warmth of our planet, how hot our planet is. But it has a second effect, which is that when carbon dioxide mixes with water, it forms this weak acid known as carbonic acid. And the ocean is actually 30% more acidic than it was, say, 100 years ago already because of the extra carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And like you know, acid can dissolve things. I mean, we know that um, the acid in Coca-Cola can kind of dissolve our teeth. So the same thing happens in the ocean, and it can dissolve things with shells pretty easily. And corals with their calcium carbonate skeleton. And so jellyfish that don't have a hard skeleton like that, the idea is, well, ocean acidification won't affect them because they don't have a skeleton to be worried about or to get dissolved away. But there's other things that changing the pH or the acidity of the water can do, and those things really need to be tested. So are jellyfish on the rise? You know, I think the way to say it is that there are places in the world where jellyfish are on the rise. And those are places that tend to be really disturbed places. The places I would point out, I think, are, you know, off the coast of Japan, this giant jellyfish that I chase in the book 
it only used, it can grow to 500 pounds and it's this, it can be extremely destructive. Um, like one fishing boat caught so many that it flipped over. It's probably on the rise there because of a lot of pollution coming in from China and warming waters, maybe potentially, but it used to only be seen. I mean, this jellyfish was the kind of thing that was only seen every 30 years throughout the whole 20th century. So like a fisherman would tell his son, like, yeah, remember that year there was the giant jellyfish swarm and then no one would see it for 30 years. And then every year of the 21st century, it has been seen. And in some cases in huge, huge swarms, like the greatest biomass of jellyfish ever was swept along the coast of Japan in 2009. So that's a very disturbed ecosystem um, because of a lot of pollution and coupled with warming and a lot of overfishing as well. And then off the coast of Namibia, um, there was extremely unregulated fishing at the end of the 20th century when South Africa was actually in charge of Namibian waters and they just let these huge factory ships come in and take whatever they wanted. And it used to be an extremely rich fishery grounds. And now the biomass, the mass, the weight of jellyfish to fish is like three to one. And it's unlikely that that ecosystem will switch back to fish dominated. And then in the Mediterranean, um, there's huge swarms of jellyfish blooms that just never used to exist there. That's probably a combination of warming, overfishing, and also ship traffic bringing in invasive species. So yeah, there are places in the world where jellyfish have taken hold in a way that's new and different. But globally, you know, there's examples where we think jellyfish are on the rise, like in the Arctic for many years, it looked like jellyfish numbers were increasing and then it looks like they're tending downwards now. So part of the problem of saying like exactly what's happening is that we need a lot more data. We don't know exactly. In the book, you write about some of the ways that jellyfish have harmed different industries and different parts of the coast. But you also talk about how they can be positive and have positive effects for the earth as a whole. So it sounds kind of like the rise of jellyfish, if it's really happening, may not be as bad as we think because there could be positive effects. What are some of the positive effects of jellyfish? Ecosystem-wise, jellyfish have an interesting role because they can eat things that are very small, and yet they can be eaten by fish and turtles. And, and we're really only now understanding just how many fish. Actually, there was a study, like, I think about... a two or three weeks ago that showed that penguins and albatrosses eat an unexpectedly high number of jellyfish. So we're, and, and that's not even my book because it's so recent. So we're just kind of getting to know how, what, what kind of role jellyfish play. When we talk about ocean ecosystems, we often talk about it based on size. So like small things are eaten by things a little bigger, which are eaten by things a little bigger, which are eaten by things a little bigger. And the jellyfish play this interesting connection between very, very small because their stinging cells, which they use for predation, are like micron size. They're teeny weeny. So they sting very small things and yet they eat things that are bigger. So there's sort of this interesting connector between the very, very small and the somewhat larger that, you know, something like a fish wouldn't be. So there, yeah, there's a very um, important piece of research that needs to get done, understanding like the role of jellyfish in, in our, in, in global ecosystems. And, and that work is really still just unfolding right now. There's another part of the question, which is like, can this 
proliferation of jellyfish be good for us? And because there's a little more attention being focused on jellyfish, we are looking at them as like a source of food and for questions of, you know, can they affect, can we use them as medicine? Can they affect our health? And jellyfish are all collagen. They're very, very high in collagen, which we do use for medical research. There is collagen that, that is used for that purpose that generally comes from pigs and chickens. And some people are allergic to that. Some of them have ethical reasons for not wanting to use pigs and chickens. And jellyfish seem to be less allergy producing. Collagen is, is a source of interest by uh, several bio, biomedical labs right now. And actually the stinging cell itself has interest because it's like a tiny little injector that can go through the out, outer layer of our skin. And if you surround it with medicine, you could deliver drugs that way. And so there's been some tests going on about that. Um, in terms of food, there's some Italians, of course, who are super interested in jellyfish as food. It's been eaten for a thousand years in Asia. But the traditional preparation, you kind of pickle it using salt and alum. And alum isn't so terrific for our brains. And it's been linked to things like Alzheimer's. So in Italy, they're like, maybe we can freeze dry it or maybe we can extract all the water because you need to extract the water so it doesn't spoil. So using alcohol or, you know, maybe we can deep freeze it really fast. And the chefs, they are kind of like, this is a fun new toy to play with. The Italians have also done some work on their anti-cancer capabilities in culture. And they found that they might actually have some ability to fight cancer. And then they are super, super high in antioxidants even compared to the standards that they were using to measure it. And there's one more thing which I should mention, which is the immortal jellyfish, which is this jellyfish that technically can age backwards. So the life cycle of a jellyfish goes from that polyp I was telling you about to the medusa. And then the medusa make eggs and sperm, which form a larvae, which form that polyp, and it becomes a medusa again. But this one, well, it's actually probably more than one species. A few species of jellyfish can go from the medusa back to Apollo. And when they do, essentially their cells become stem cells again, which is really, really unusual. Like when we think about the life cycle of a cell in our body, we have stem cells, which can become kidney cells or liver cells or nerve cells. And then once they're kidney cell or liver cell, they can't go backwards to become a stem cell again. But in this jellyfish, they do. And the question is how? And if so, what can we learn about cancer, which is sort of uncontrolled growth, from the mature cells going backwards to a stem cell? So that's another area of research that's really happening right now and very, very interesting. So, yeah, you know, once we start looking at things, we always find uses for them. I thought the subtitle of your book was interesting, The Art of Growing a Backbone. I had a sense that was maybe related to your wanting it to be also a memoir. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the subtitle and the memoir aspect of the book. Well, so I did a bunch of research for a lot of years on jellyfish. And I, I went around and I like, you know, cobbled together these family vacations where where I would like say, oh, you guys, let's go here because I would know that there would be a jellyfish scientist I could go talk to nearby. <laughs> and um. And so I had like this giant kind of mess of a book and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then I realized 
the jellyfish could kind of guide me. So actually the structure of the book is based on um, the jellyfish life cycle. And so the first chapter is called the planula, which is kind of like the larvae, the idea of the book. And then for a long time, I'm sitting here in Austin and then going on these little vacations and calling up scientists and talking to them. So I'm almost like planted talking to scientists about, you know, reaching my tentacles out and kind of saying, what is a jellyfish? And throughout that, my notion of who I am as a person really changes. And um, my idea of myself as not just someone who writes articles or, or textbooks based on what an editor is telling me to do kind of shifts and becomes one of like, wow, you know, I want to control the story. And so at some point, I like the jellyfish. <laughs> um, I hop away from the polyp and I become free floating and I go off to Japan to chase the giant jellyfish and I do it, you know, by hook and by crook and using frequent flyer miles. And then my idea of what jellyfish are and kind of also what my place in the story is matures. And the last section of the book is called Medusa, which is the mature form of the jellyfish. So the memoir part really is integral to the book and its structure and I, yeah, I felt like once I figured out that the life cycle of the jellyfish could guide me, the book kind of all fell together at that point. It's been really wonderful to chat with you. And we're really looking forward to having you in the store. I can't wait. I'm really excited. And thank you for inviting me and also offering to have me on the podcast. That was Elizabeth's interview with Julie Bearwald about Julie's new book, Spineless. Catch Julie Bearwald here at the store tonight, Tuesday, November 14th at 7 p.m. Next, here are Melanie Thompson and myself giving you some books to be excited about. Today, I'd like to recommend to you Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber. If you were to mix the tone of Shirley Jackson, Charles Perrault, and Anais Nin, you would find a voice similar to that of Angela Carter. This collection of short stories was largely inspired by the work she had just finished, translating the famous French fairy tales of Charles Perrault. Carter infuses her stories with subtle and outright violence and laces them with layers of sensuality. While commonplace today, these themes and risque content were a bold decision when the book was originally published in 1979. Some stories the reader may recognize, such as Puss in Boots, while the namesake story, The Bloody Chamber, may be less familiar. This is a beautiful 75th anniversary edition put out by Penguin, and I suggest you pick up a copy today. John Ashbery's poetry can be generalized in three ways. It's almost always hard to understand, its language is stunning, and it's populated with Ashbery's wit and acumen. Such is the case with his final collection before his passing, Commotion of the Birds. In these poems, Ashbery writes in such a joyfully cynical mode, overriding logic and twisting language in praise of the absurdity of life and of poetry. I can't say I understand many of these poems, and some are downright opaque. But what made Ashbery so incredible was that you don't need to understand the literal meaning of his work. The work is by itself so weird and linguistically dense and enjoyable that the reader can happily try to hold on for the ride. For, as Ashbery writes in this book, the clock is running over, and an octopus wears my wallet now.
And finally, here's what's happening at Interabang Books this coming week. Tonight, Tuesday, November 14th at 7pm, we'll have the aforementioned Julie Bearwald in the store talking about Spineless. Jackie Goldstein, author of Voices of Hope for Mental Illness, will be here at the store tomorrow, Wednesday, November 15th at 7pm. Young Adult Book Club will meet here on Thursday the 16th at 7pm, discussing The Arsonist by Stephanie Oakes. You can still pick up copies here at the store. Award-winning poet Natalie Graham will read from her lauded poetry collection, Begin with a Failed Body, at the store at 7pm on Friday, November 17th. Author James Haley is coming to the store this Saturday, November 18th, at 3pm to discuss his historical novel, A Darker Sea. And finally, young adult fiction authors Mary Lindsay and Victoria Scott will talk about their wonderful novels, Haven and Violet Grenade, next Monday, November 20th at 7 p.m. in the store. And finally, young adult op- and finally, young adult and finally, young adult fiction authors Mary Lindsay and Victoria Scott will talk about their wonderful novels, Haven and Violet Grenade, next Monday, November 20th at 7 p.m. in the store. And finally, young adult fiction authors Mary Lindsay and Victoria Scott will talk about their wonderful novels, Haven and Violet Grenade, next Monday, November 20th at 7 p.m. in the store. Remember, you can find information about these and all of our other events on our website, www.interabingbooks.com. That's it for Episode 5 of Interabing Podcast. New episodes of Interabing Podcast are posted every week, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The podcast is produced by Interabing Books in Dallas, Texas. Our music was composed by Carlos Guajardo. I'm Jack Freeman. We hope to see you in the store soon. Have a great week and read fearlessly. Fearlessly.